0: All right, I'm really glad to be here, glad you're here uh, to enjoy this time. It has been an unprecedented little weird where if you watch news, it is the end of the world and then you talk with your friend and it's the same. So I I feel a little disconnected watching and then meeting people and talking with you like, oh, life goes on. It's really good. And then you read the stories of people who are hoarding all of the sanitizer and um, the toilet paper. One guy is upset that he drove thousands of miles, bought and out everything, is now Amazon is not letting him resell it. And I'd say justice served. That's right, because that would be unjust that he's not. Um... And so this morning, as we go through this passage in John chapter 19, at the end of the day, I want us to be encouraged. I want us to have hope and I want us to have confidence in that the Lord sits on his throne, that the Lord is sovereign, that he's in control of you and me, and that we are the emissaries of that hope to the world. We are the ones who are going to take that sense of confidence, hope, and joy in Christ and in God to the world around. So as we're standing in line, as we are going out to eat, or as we're talking with our neighbors, what are we sharing? our hope and our confidence in Christ on the throne. But for him to get on that throne, he had to go through an immense amount of injustice. And injustice is a very common thing in this world, is it not? Watch the news. Even in our own city, in our own town, we know of kids who have been abused by the very people who are supposed to protect them, watch over them, and provide for them have have almost ended their life. We know that injustice. We know the injustice throughout the world where there's human trafficking and people are bought and sold as a commodity to satisfy people's wicked, evil desires. We also know there's injustice that happens in our own daily lives, in our family, the way things people speak to us, the way they assume things of us. Injustice is a very real thing in this world. What is a holy, good God supposed to do with injustice? The passage we're in, John chapter 19, and actually sta- started in John chapter 18 with Pastor Ryan the past two weeks. There's injustice being leveled upon Christ. He's being treated as one who has sinned and done wrong. And yet he has not done either of those things. He's being unjustly treated and unjustly tried. What is a good, righteous, sovereign God supposed to do with injustice? And I think he does one thing primarily. He reveals his glory through it. Throughout the Gospels, if you read them, there's this phrase that's uttered a couple times by Jesus, my hour has not yet come, or my time has not yet come. That's not the case in this passage in John chapter 18 and 19. His hour has come. The hour was a a phrase used to denote the consummation of God's plan of salvation and the revelation of God's glory through Christ. That was what the hour culminates into. And so this morning, we are looking at the hour of injustice. But it truly is the hour of glory. And so as we go through this passage together, ask questions in your mind. I want you to observe the injustice, but at the end what we're going to do is reveal the glory. That we truly do have a sovereign God who sits on the throne. And so brothers and sisters, as we are in John chapter 19, I want you to know that in this hour of injustice, God presents glory. But the same goes for you. Many of you have hours of injustice. That you would question and wonder, how is a righteous, sovereign God supposed to work in this? And it's the same as it always been. He will reveal His glory. Our hour of injustice will become an hour of His glory. So will you pray with me as we jump into this passage? Our Lord and our God, we ask for your Spirit to be the teacher this morning, knowing that we have eyes that are fickle and hearts that are wandering. So may our eyes truly see what you have to tell us. May our hearts observe and believe in your Son and who he is. We ask for your help to understand these words, and we ask for your Spirit's power to help us live them out. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. So I think we need to observe the injustice first. Let's go through John chapter 19, verses 1 through 16, and we're going to observe the injustice leveled against Christ. And specifically, the injustice leveled against a king. And so the injustice that presents itself right off the bat is that a king is mocked. Look with me in John chapter 19 verses 1 through 5 it says this, Then Pilate took Jesus and had him flogged. The soldiers also twisted together a crown of thorns and put it on his head, and clothed him in purple robe. And they kept coming up to him saying, Hail, King of the Jews! And were slapping his face. Pilate went outside again and said to them, "Look." I'm bringing him out to you to let you know that I find no grounds for charging him. Then Jesus came out wearing the crown of thorns and a purple robe. And Pilate said to them, Here is the man. This king is essentially mocked. Now if you read John chapter, let's go to the little Bible nerd section of the message. In chapter 18 and 19, there's this phrase that John uses again and again, inside and outside. They went in and they went out. This is John's terminology to help you change pictures, that the story is progressing and if you were to level all of those up, ins and outs, they actually peak as a pyramid right here in John chapter 19, 1 through 5. This is the peak of the story. And so the, the, it's all culminating us realizing one thing, that Jesus is a king. John is presenting that Christ truly is a king, but he's presenting it in irony. And the irony is taking place that this king is being mocked. Now the other thing we're noticing is that Jesus is flogged prior to his sentencing, He's beaten prior to him being committed to the cross before the sentence has been passed. That's because Jesus has been flogged twice in, in his trial. In Mark, in Matthew, he's flogged after Pilate sentenced him to the cross. Here in John, it's before. That's because there's two. And there's three types of flogging one can endure. You can en- endure a flogging to humiliate and to punish like a hooligan or someone who breaks the law or does something unruly. Then, there are more severe floggings that either ended in death itself or just to to lash the body in such a degree that you have blood blisters everywhere. Jesus is flogged primarily that first one. He's being mocked and ridiculed by Pilate because Pilate has a plan. Pilate doesn't buy the accusation that the Jews have leveled against Jesus, that he's a seditionist, that he is moving away and opposing Rome and trying to create his own kingdom. Pilate doesn't believe it. And so he's trying to placate the desires of the Jews by, if I just punish him, if I just humiliate him, if I whip him and crown him with a crown of thorns, then that might placate their desires. And so that's what he does. Jesus is whipped and flogged because Pilate has a weak spine. Because he's not a a strong ruler. He's scared for his own neck, his own status and his own position. And so he whips Jesus He's put a a crown is put on his head of twelve up to twelve inch long thorns are pressed down, a robe is thrown over his whipped and lashed, bloodied and bruised back, and he's paraded out in front of him. And he says, "Here is the man." He is mocking both Jesus and the Jews that stand in front of him. He's mocking Jesus by saying, "Look at this pathetic person," and then he's mocking the Jews, Jude. Why are you so afraid of this man? Look at him. He's humiliated. He is nothing. He is worthless. He's insignificant. And Pilate thinks his plan is going to work. Pilate should have the most control and authority in this whole setting, given his position as Roman prefect, Roman governor. But what we're going to eventually find out, he actually has the least. The tables are going to be turned here. And so the king is being mocked. The king is ridiculed. But this truly is The man. In all sense of the term, he is the word of God in flesh that John tells us in John chapter 1. He is the embodiment of God's glory. Through him, the revelation of God's glory is given to the world. So in one sense, Pilate is actually right. This is the man. Although he is mocking him, he is nonetheless saying the truth. And Pilate thinks his plan is going to work. This man who stands before him, who is bloodied, who is bruised, what wrong has he done? Nothing. He opposed sin. He's opposed wickedness. He's actually stood up and, and, and given Rome its day. Rendered to Caesar. What is Caesar's? And do you know what? Pilate knows this. Pilate sees nothing wrong with this man and so tries to issue a decree to let him go. But the other crowd has a say too. And inevitably, what is taking place is Jesus is becoming a pawn to be used by both sides as they reveal their animosity towards one another. The Romans to the Jews and the Jews to the Romans. And so what takes place? Pilate issues this. Here is this man. He thinks that's going to work, but it doesn't. Jesus is the rightful king, but Pilate and the people's self-absorption in their mockery and in their heart have dismissed all of his claims of being a king and end up rejecting him as the king. And so after the king is mocked, The king has disavowed. Look with me in verse 6. When the chief priest and temple servants saw him, they shouted, Crucify! Crucify! And Pilate responded, Take him and crucify him yourselves, since I find no grounds for charging him. We have a law, the Jews replied to him. According to that law, he ought to die, because he made himself the son of God. Pilate's plan backfires. It doesn't work. It only intensifies the crowd's desire for death and to see Jesus punished and crucified. And then Pilate has this sarcastic response. What does he say? You take him and crucify him. Now, is, is Pilate really abdicating his Roman rule and his, his right to and his authority over this case? He's not. What he's actually saying is, you bring him to me for judgment and yet you reject my judgment. You don't want to listen to what I have to say. I want to release him and set him go, but you're not going to let me. And then they come up with the phrase, and so the next volley back to Pilate from the crowd is, we have a law. Now in that day, Roman prefects and Roman rulers had to uphold Roman law and local law. They had to do both. Ah, dang, Pilate thinks. Shoot, I I thought it was out of this, but it doesn't quite work out that way. We, We have a law, they say. And specifically, what is the law? He's claiming to be the Son of God. Now on the surface level, that is actually not a bla- it's not blasphemy. It's not a crime. The kings of old were given that title. That's a title given to a king, to be the Son of God. Look at in Psalm chapter 2. To be the king of Israel is to be the Son of God. And so this wasn't a blasphemous thing worthy of death. But the Jews recognize that every occurrence that Jesus has used it has always used it to pronounce this equality with God, and they've rejected that. Look with me in, uh, it's, I think it's Matthew 8, I forgot about the, what, what phrase is it? Matthew, excuse me, it's John 18, says this, uh, not 18, but it's a verse, this is why the Jews began trying all the more to kill him. Not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was even calling God his own father, making himself equal to be, with God. And so the Jews have rejected this claim that Jesus has been presenting time and time again, that he is equal with God, right? And authority, sovereignty, rule, all of these things that God has and should only have, he has made himself out to be that way. And so why have they rejected this? I often think about this all the time. With all the evidence and all the words, all the, all the parables that he's given, why do the Jews ultimately reject every claim and strike out from the book of evidence everything that he's said and done? Because it costs too much to believe in this God. It costs too much to believe in Jesus for them. They're more concerned about what they will lose if they affirm Jesus as their king than what they'll gain from Jesus as their king. I know of a story between a a father and a daughter that after they read a Bible story, they go through prayers. In in, In this instance, it was after Jesus and Zacchaeus. Now, if you know the story of Jesus and Zacchaeus, Zacchaeus is up in a tree, Jesus calls him down, and that's a shock to everyone because he was a tax collector. He was a swindler. He stole money from the Jews, and he was himself a Jew, and gave it to the Romans, who were their overlords and oppressors. And so tax collectors were looked down upon. But the fact that Jesus recognizes him and and eats with him and wants to identify with him, that's a miraculous story. And the end result of that is Zacchaeus turns from his wicked ways. He gives all of his money back. And so as the father and daughter kind of conclude the story, they start praying. And the, and the daughter doesn't quite know everything to pray yet, so the, daughter will pr- or the, the father will prompt the daughter by giving a phrase and then leaving it the blank, and the daughter will fill it in. And so, God, we thank you that Jesus, and then she fell in loves Zacchaeus. But then eventually he goes down the road, and he asks this question, or he says this statement, Father, without, Je- without Jesus, Zacchaeus would have, and she says, more money funny, but it's actually the case. He literally would have more money. But in our minds, if you've spent time in church and around Christ and believe in him, we are are prone to think about what Jesus actually offers us now. But if you're on the outside looking in, there is a big cost to follow Christ. We have to sacrifice our own desires, our own natures, and ultimately, what are we sacrificing? The fact that we get to be autonomous. That we get to be self-gods. We get to self-rule that's what's at stake even more so for the jews of this day they were leaders over the jewish nation that they would have to sacrifice their their high and lofty position all of their insider uh, um, joys of being on the inside circle they would have to cast those crowns aside and so for you and i as we look at this when when the king is rejected why is he rejected because to follow him costs so much and yet Would we, in our sin, continue to disavow the king instead of pledging loyalty to him? See, Christ is more significant. What he gives is more significant than what he's asking for. What is he going to give to us? What have we looked through in the past couple weeks? That he's going to give us joy, peace, life, friendship. Even he will give his own life for us. That is much more than what we'd have to give. And so Jesus offers these things. Will we reject the king and disavow him and his throne too? I would hope that it's not the case. But it is the case in this story. And so after the king is mocked, after the king is disavowed and rejected, the king is contested. Look with me in verse 8. When Pilate heard this statement, he was more afraid than ever. He went back into the headquarters and asked Jesus, where are you from? But Jesus did not give him an answer. So Pilate said to him, Do you refuse to speak to me? Don't you know that I have the authority to release you and the authority to crucify you? You would have no authority over me at all, Jesus answered, if it hadn't been given to you from above. This is why the one who handed me over to you has the greater sin. From that moment, Pilate kept trying to release him, but the Jews shouted, If you release this man, you are not Caesar's friend. Anyone who makes himself a king opposes Caesar." I'm fascinated by verse 8. I'm fascinated by this little interaction as Jesus is now ushered back into and away from the crowd. Remember, John uses the in and out. These are the changes in the progression of the narrative. Jesus is being proclaimed. He makes himself to be the son of God. And what does it say? Pilate becomes even more afraid. Man, it's ironic that a Roman official is more prone to believe in Jesus than his own people. Because that Roman official is polytheistic and he's also superstitious. And so in his mind, Pilate becomes more afraid because he wants to know, oh, shoot, am I implicated in flogging and whipping this divine man who has power and some connection to the gods? And so Pilate ushers him in and asks this question, where are you from? Now this isn't, what's your address? I want to send you some mail. That's not the extent of the question being asked. It's actually truly, where do you originate from? What is your nature? What's unique about you? Now, on the onset, I hear that and I think, oh, this is an awesome open door. Sweet. Pilate's going to come to faith. But it says Jesus remains silent. Any one of us in that same position, we'd go, all right, cool. I get to share the gospel. Here we go. Are you ready? The door's open. This isn't awkward. I just get to share with you. That's awesome. But why does Jesus remain silent? This seems like a prime opportunity. But Pilate's not going to understand. That's what happened in the previous passage in verse eight, chapter 18. Jesus was silent again after being asked. For two reasons. One, because Pilate ultimately is not going to understand. Jesus has spent three years proclaiming this truth, both in act and in word and in deed. And no one believed. It's not going to change in this moment. But two, and more importantly, Christ has to go to the cross. And he knows it. It's the will of God for him to die for the sins of the world. And so Jesus remains silent so that he can accomplish the will of God. And Pilate takes this as a slight against him. Jesus' silence is interpreted by Pilate as superiority, which ironically it truly is. But what, what Pilate interprets is like a philosopher of his day. For the philosophers to remain silent is to put their nose in the air and say, I'm better than you. You you are not worthy to render an answer to. Which is why Pilate gives his this response. Why are you not answering me? Don't you know that I have the authority? And now Pilate contests Jesus as king. I have the authority to release you or to crucify you. And what's Jesus' response? The same way he's done throughout his trial, he, he, he turns the tables on his interrogators and he becomes the one interrogating them and they're left speechless. And the same happens here. You would have no authority but that which comes from above. On two levels, he kind of points the finger at Pilate and say, you're nothing. Your authority is merely here because Caesar happened to grant you the authority to be here, but he can bring another. But on a much higher and grander level, all authority stems from God the Father. All authority comes down from here. Even to this day, authority is uh, uh, broken down and given to people, but it all resonates with God, who is the authority, who has control, who is responsible. And so Jesus silences Pilate. Notice there's no response. What's the response after that? What does it say? From that moment, Pilate kept trying to release him. Pilate is stumped. Pilate semi-believes, and now he says, I got I, I to let this guy go. But now Pilate's authority is pressed up against the Roman crowd, I mean the Jewish crowd's authority. Although Rome, uh, Pilate on paper should be the authority of the land, and whatever he says goes, that's not what's taking place here, because Pilate has the least authority, because he has no spine as a leader. And even though it says, "He who handed me over to you has the greater sin," which is probably Caiaphas, Pilate's going to be implicated in that as well as he hands him over to the cross but he comes up against the, the religious rulers and the crowd, and they simply say one thing. You can either be a friend of Jesus or a friend of Caesar. You can't be both. What's the difference between a, being a friend of Jesus and a friend of Caesar? If those are my two options, I know which one I'm gonna choose, because what has Jesus talked about being a friend back in John chapter 15? What's a friend of Jesus? Loyalty, faithfulness, confidence. And that friend is even going to go to the cross. He will die for one another. What does Caesar offer? Retribution, punishment, and and promises to kill all who oppose him. Which one would you choose as a friend? The choice is really clear. But the crowd and Pilate choose Caesar. They are more afraid of what they will lose rather than what they will gain with Christ. And so the king is contested, but that's not all that happens. Ultimately, the king is usurped. A false king will sit on the throne. When Pilate heard these words, he brought Jesus outside. He sat down on the judge's seat in in the place called the Stone Pavement, but in Aramaic, Gabbatha. It was the preparation day for the Passover, and it was about noon Then he told the Jews, here is your king. And they shouted, take him away. Take him away. Crucify him. And Pilate said to them, should I crucify your king? And they say, we have no king but Caesar. And they handed him over to be crucified. I almost vomit each time I read that last line. I really do. The very... Things Jesus is being accused of of sedition and blasphemy by the people who are supposed to receive him and to believe in him, they are the ones that commit the very crimes they're pressing against him. They become the seditionists. They become the blasphemers in this moment, not against Caesar but against their rightful king, God. Do you see the irony? It's dripping out of this, and Paul, excuse me, John is presenting it. Only God is supposed to be their king. However, this is not the first time this has happened. History is repeating itself. Look at 1 Samuel 8, verse 7, says, But the Lord told him, Listen to the people, and everything they say to you. They have not rejected you, they have rejected me as their king. The Lord has been usurped before. It's merely happening again on such a grand scale. The bitter irony of injustice can't be contained. Remember what happened last week at the end of the sermon and in John chapter 18? What Pastor Ryan preached, there was an option on the stage for the crowd to choose. Two sons of the father. That's what Barabbas means, son of the father. They could have chose Jesus, who's the true son of the father, or Barabbas, the false son of the father. And what do they choose? Barabbas. They choose the rebel. This crowd is a bunch of hypocrites. And saying they, they're friends of Caesar and want to worship Caesar and profess Caesar. Yet they release the rebel who will lead a revolt against him. And on this, this stage right now, only moments later, they have two options. You have one king, Caesar. Or you have the true and rightful king, Christ. Which will you choose? Do you see the injustice throughout this? Christ is merely a pawn. He, in this story, on the very surface, he truly is the most insignificant. And that's the way it's made out to be. That he's the one that has no authority and no control over what's going on. And yet, the tables are being reversed. Through this injustice, what's breaking through the ground is God's glory. And so what is God to do with this injustice? What's he to do with our injustice? Because these things still go on in our day through sin. In sin we mock God. We mock Christ as a king. In sin we reject his rule and his authority. In sin we think we will get away with judgment and it'll be okay. In sin we we usurp him and claim ourselves to be self gods. What's God to do with such an injustice? He reveals his glory. Glory of the one and only through Christ. And so we, we may observe the injustice, but you know what John's trying to do? Through irony, he's actually paying the picture of God's glory through each and every instance. As we go back through this passage, I want you to look very closely at everything that's taking place. As the king is mocked by man, he's actually being crowned by God. It's not a crown that we would choose or even he would choose, but nonetheless, it's taking place. Jesus is the true and rightful king of Israel. He has lived a sinless and blameless life. He is truly righteous. Unlike the kings of old who failed completely or missed the mark by even a small margin. Christ isn't like those kings. Christ has proved himself worthy. He's Israel's true shepherd who truly can and will save. It may be a crown of thorns, but it's still a crown. As the king is rejected... By the crowd. He's being accepted by the Father. Notice the interaction between these two phrases that are issued. What does Pilate say? Pilate says, here is the, the man. And what is the reaction of the crowd? What do they say? Here is the Son of God. Do you see what John's doing? He is using rebellious people to reveal God's glory. God is so sovereign that He can take people who wish nothing and want nothing to do with Him and still use their mouth to proclaim the truth. Jesus is being accepted by God because He's truly God and truly man. He's the God man. That's what's being issued in this statement that He is the true mediator between God and man. He is able to pay the penalty of sin and to restore the relation that was broken in the garden. He is being accepted by God and He's removing guilt and the bondage to sin. Only he is able to do that. And still, as the king is being contested, he's being given a scepter and a throne. Look with me in verse 13 again. This is what it says. When Pilate heard these words, he brought Jesus out and sat him down on the judge's seat in the place called the stone pavement. Now, John in the Greek, we're going to go to a Bible nerd again, has some ambiguity in in the phrases he chose. You can have two meanings from the phrases and the words he chose. Either Pilate brought Jesus out and set Jesus in the judgment seat, or he brought Jesus out and he sat in the judgment seat. The way the, the Greek is constructed, there's ambiguity. It can be either. Now, logically, given what was just said, to be a friend of this man is not to be a friend of Caesar's, it's really unlikely that he took Jesus out and sat him in the seat of authority in Judea. Probably not a good chance that that happened. But why does John leave the ambiguity? What does he want us to realize? Whose seat is that? It's Christ's. He is the true and rightful judge over this world and over this trial. He's the judge that will stand at the end of days. That although those that handed him over and Pilate, who will hand him over, will be implicated in this, they will be punished for their injustice. Justice is coming. This is Jesus' throne. Make no mistake. As he is being contested, he's being given a scepter and a throne. In John chapter 5, verses 26 and 27, For as the Father has life in himself, so he has granted the Son also to have life in himself. And he has given him authority to execute judgment, because he is the Son of Man. That is promised, and that is what's taking place to this day. But at the very end, as the king is being usurped, his kingdom is being established forever. In verse 14, this is really important. We may have pressed over it real fast, but it's actually my, very meaningful. It says, it was, the, it was the preparation day for the Passover, and it was about noon when the Jews, when he told the Jews, Here is your king. You know what the day of preparation, you know what you do at noon on the day of preparation for Passover? At the very same time, Jesus is being tried and being presented to the people, a lamb is being selected by the priest in the temple to be crucified for the sins of the people. At the very same time, Christ has been selected as the true Paschal Lamb, the one who will pay the penalty of sin of the world forever, has been chosen. And his kingdom is established forever. That sacrifice has not been undone. This injustice that's being leveled at this time should have crushed this fledgling movement. It should have undone every word and eradicated everything Jesus has said. And yet, here we sit this day, thousands of years later. There's a town in northern Israel called Caesarea Philippi. And at that place, uh, if you go and visit there today, I've been able to visit there. It's fascinating. It's really cool. There's a cave around Caesarea Philippi. And there used to be uh, an immense amount of temples and altars set up there around this cave because that was deemed the birthplace of the god Pan. It's a Greek and Roman god. But when I went there a number of years ago, do you know what? I didn't see any altar, and I didn't see anybody going to Caesarea Philippi to check out Pan and to worship him. I did see Christians from all over the globe following in the footsteps of Jesus you know what happened at Caesarea Philippi? The disciples figured out who Jesus was, at least in part. Read with me in Matthew chapter 16, verses 13 through 18. When Jesus came to the region of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, who do people say the Son of Man is? They replied, "Uh, some say John the Baptist, others Elijah, still others Jeremiah, or one of the prophets. But you, Jesus responded, who do you say that I am? Simon Peter answered, You're the Messiah, the son of the living God. And Jesus responded, Blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah, because flesh and blood did not reveal this to you, but my Father in heaven. And and I also say to you that you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of Hades will not overpower it. This fledgling movement did not get crushed in this day of injustice because God's glory was revealed through that hour. And here we sit today, proclaiming and worshiping the very Savior who was crushed on this day. And so the one question that Jesus asks his disciples, we have to ask, who do we say that he is? That's an answer that everyone must give. Either be like Pilate and recognize a semblance of the truth, but back away from it for fear of what it may cost him. Or the Jews, who seemingly recognize it, have seen it, but have eradicated it from any form of belief and defy their king. Or you can be like the disciples who see and believe and have life in his name. I'm fascinated by this story and this passage. The irony that John presents is on a grand scale. And if God can turn this hour of injustice and reveal his glory, how much more so can he turn our hours of injustice and reveal his great glory? even in this crazy, chaotic little week that we've had. As people are lining up, fearful of what may come, trying to stock up and to provide for themselves, we can stand with them and proclaim, I have a God who sits on the throne. I believe in a sovereign king who is able to rule righteously and justly over everything that's taking place. This is what our world needs. It needs people who proclaim who Jesus truly is, the God-man the Savior. And so who do you say that he is? Why would Jesus endure such injustice? Why would he do it if he wasn't sovereign over it? Because the tables were turned. Pilate had the least authority. And Jesus, who is the silent pawn in all of this, was truly orchestrating events to reveal his glory. Which is why he says at the end of John, chapter 16, in this world, You will have suffering in me. You will have peace, but take heart! I've overcome the world. With that, brothers and sisters, we join him in victory, because God is able to transform injustice to reveal His great glory, because He is sovereign. Will you pray with me? Our Lord and our God, we ask you to teach us, to mend our to our needs, to reveal to us our desires, but ultimately to have us reflect on who we say your son is. God, I pray that we will not continue in sin and mock and reject, contest, or usurp him. That we in humility will recognize we have more to gain with him than being apart from him. So God, in this room, I pray for the brothers and sisters in here who are in sin who in some way, shape, or form have replaced Christ, I pray that they may bow in in humble adoration and confession to you. And Father, for those in this room who have yet to recognize and attest to who Jesus is, may they come to a realization. May they not be like Pilate or the crowd, but may they be like Peter who professes you truly are the Christ. Will you save, Father? And will you help us to profess your control and your sovereignty and your true king in this world? May we start in a grocery line. May we start at a gas station. May we start in such a way that we live as a king, knowing our king lives and sits on a throne. We pray this in Christ's holy name. Amen.